0: I'm Katie Fang, live from Telemundo Studios in Miami, Florida. And here's The Week That Was.
1: Why am
2: I back? Uh, You may be asking yourselves. It's a very reasonable question. Uh, I have committed a lot of crimes.
3: (laughs) The Republican-led House will not be jammed or forced into passing a foreign aid bill that was opposed by most Republican senators and does nothing to secure our Democrat
0: Tom Susie is the winner of the special election in New York to replace House and Republican Congressman
2: George Santos. You can uh, try to put lipstick on this pig. It is still a pig. And this is a, a terrible impeachment. At least one person was killed and up to 15 injured She's after a here. shooting at a parade Most celebrating the t- chief's second straight Super Bowl win. Parades,
4: rallies, schools, movies. It seems like almost nothing is safe. Alexei Navalny, The jailed opposition leader and main Vladimir Putin critic has died. They will be punished for what
5: they have done with our country, with my family, and with my
4: husband. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me
3: on trial.
0: I don't need anything from a man. A man is not a plan. A man is a companion. And the only man who has ever foot my bills completely is my daddy. Now, that's just a small taste of the fire that D.A. Fonnie Willis brought to the witness stand on Thursday as she testified in the evidentiary hearing to disqualify her as the prosecuting attorney in Donald Trump's Georgia Rico case. What will the presiding judge, Scott McAfee, do now? We've got the latest on what's next. and a good Saturday to you all. We begin today's show with Donald Trump taking a massive body blow, not only to his so-called real estate empire, but to his wallet as well. Yesterday, the judge at his New York civil fraud trial ordered the former president to pay $453 million in damages. That figure includes nearly $98 million in interest, an amount New York Attorney General Letitia James said will continue to grow every single day until the judgment is paid. In addition, Justice Engoron ruling that Donald Trump is barred from personally running any businesses or applying for any bank loans in the state of New York for three years. Trump predictably bashing the ruling, calling it a fine for doing a perfect job. But here's what Letitia James had to say shortly after the release of that 92-page ruling.
4: Today, we prove that no one is above the law, no matter how rich, powerful, or politically connected you are, everyone must play by the same rules.
0: Joining me now, Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst and the host of the Justice Matters podcast. Glenn, my friend, it's so good to see you. Look, you and I have seen multi-page rulings in our lives, but this one's got a pretty decent price tag on it. Let's start with that ruling from Justice and Goran. What are your two top, top line takeaways?
2: Well, Katie, among the top line takeaways is I think we have to look at the trajectory that Donald Trump's civil trials have been on. He started by losing a $5 million judgment. Then he lost an $83 million judgment. Now he's lost a more than $450 million judgment. And as you say, he is barred from doing business in New York for a number of years. And here's the thing, as bad as all of that is, Lady Justice is just getting warmed up because next up for Donald Trump is his first criminal trial. And then he has four criminal trials stacked up. It is impossible to see how he survives politically, how he survives financially. And I think, you know, all of this is just Donald Trump slowly um, being taken out of the system for the civil fraud, the civil wrongs and the crimes he is alleged to have committed.
0: You know, Glenn, I always say don't sleep on the civil cases because even though people think the criminal cases are sexier or more interesting, sometimes it's the civil cases that can pack the biggest wallop. Before I move on from this case, I did want to ask you about the factual findings. So, when you look at this 92-page ruling, Glenn, the way that the justice set it up was procedural history, how did we get here, right? And then he went into his factual findings, his determinations about the witness's credibility, for example, and then he moved on into the legal arguments before he reached his ultimate conclusion. Let's focus on Michael Cohen. We know that the New York DA, the Manhattan DA's office is gonna go to trial next month, Glenn. Michael Cohen is gonna be a key witness. What are your thoughts about those findings about Michael Cohen's credibility? Do you think that's gonna play any factor into that trial next month?
2: Yeah, no case is appellate proof. We all know that virtually every significant loss, whether in a civil setting or at a criminal trial, ends up getting appealed. But when you work your way through Judge N. Goran's findings of fact and conclusions of law, it feels like Donald Trump can certainly appeal this judgment. But I would be very surprised if he won any relief. On appeal. And listen, Michael Cohen's testimony was relied upon in this trial. I would call that important foreshadowing for what is to come, soon to come, beginning March 25th, the first criminal prosecution of Donald Trump for his attempt to interfere in the 2016 presidential election by making hush money payments and then by falsifying business records to cover up. The nature of those hush money payments. Michael Cohen will be a star witness. And importantly, he will be bolstered considerably by an audio recording of he and the defendant, Donald Trump, talking about the very criminal scheme for which Donald Trump is on trial. So again, I think this is some important foreshadowing, and I very much look forward to this first criminal prosecution kicking off in March.
0: Glenn, let's put our old prosecutor's hats back on. I want you to be D.A. Alvin Bragg. Tell me about the kind of jury you're going to be looking for when you do that jury selection process on March 25th.
2: So I'm going to look for jurors who can decide the case fairly and impartially based only on the evidence they see introduced during the course of the trial, not based on anything they may know about these charges, anything they may know about Donald Trump, or any political feelings or affiliation or ideologies they may have. Every juror is likely to have, you know, some idea of who Donald Trump is and what he's done. Every voter is likely to have some ideological beliefs even if they're not active in politics. Maybe all they do is vote, maybe they don't even vote. But the key is when they're going through jury selection, what we call voir dire, and importantly jurors are placed under oath Before they start answering questions during jury selection, in my experience, jurors generally take it deadly seriously and they try to be truthful, accurate and forthcoming. And they're going to have to say, listen, I can put all of my personal feelings aside. I can put aside anything I might know about Donald Trump and the crimes he's alleged to have committed. And I promise, I swear under oath that I can decide this case based only on the evidence I see introduced during the course of the trial. I think Alvin Bragg and his prosecutors will be able to seat a fair and impartial jury. And Donald Trump is going to get his fair trial.
0: Glenn, let's stick with this. Uh, Before I have to let you go, let's stick with this jury selection issue because you and I both know as trial lawyers, jury selection sometimes wins the case for you. It may not even matter what ends up going on depending upon the jurors that you've picked. Do you look for jurors, Glenn, that are going to be, you know, kind of focusing on the issues involving the fact that this hush money payment was made and maybe there's some morality implications going on with the former president of the United States? Or are you looking for somebody who understands maybe the more nuanced, to issues that come with business records and the idea that the falsification of them are actually the felonies that are at issue in this case?
2: Yeah, great questions, Katie, because I've always said you can't win a case in jury selection, but you can sure lose a case in jury selection. So if you have a science heavy case, some prosecutors and some defense attorneys want scientists on their jury. Some don't want scientists on their jury. You know, I think what you want is a fully informed uh, juror. Regardless of what that juror's background is, whether that juror has a background in business and business records or not, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all proposition and we can say all business people are either good or either bad. Each one you have to take on their own merits. When you look them in the eye, Katie, during jury selection, you have to quickly assess based on what they're saying and how they're saying it, their demeanor whether you think they're going to give the prosecutors a fair shake on the evidence and whether you think they're going to give the defendant a fair shake on the evidence. And I think that's what the parties are going to be looking for as they go through the jury selection process.
0: There's a legal science to it, as you and I know. And then there's also whether or not your B.S. meter is going off when they're answering you. Glenn Kirshner, thanks for getting us started today. And my friend, I always love to have you here because justice matters. Thanks for being here and still to come on The Katie Fang Show. Last woman standing, Trump's last remaining challenger Nikki Haley is warning those that will actually listen that Donald Trump will try to use the RNC as a personal piggy bank if he's reelected. We'll look ahead to their face off in South Carolina next week. And I've got Georgia on my mind. The sky high stakes for Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and why her father's testimony just might be the key to her winning the battle before the war. That's up next
2: go beyond the headlines with the new msnbc app get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays video highlights from your favorite shows and the latest updates on the 2024 election visit msnbc.com app to download
4: And it's highly offensive when they to try touch. to implicate that you slept with somebody the first day you met with them. And I take exception to it. So after, after that, you started dating shortly thereafter, correct? a lie. That's okay. one of your lies. Okay. These you. merchants' entrance are, per- are contra- contrary to democracy, Your Honor, not to mine. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial.
0: So it was a courtroom scene straight out of any legal drama. This week, all eyes were once again on Fulton County, but this time it was DA Fonnie Willis that was in that witness hot seat as she defended herself against misconduct allegations over a former relationship with special prosecutor Nathan Wade. And the stakes could not be higher. If the defense carries its burden and proves their allegations, D.A. Fani Willis, along with her entire office, would be disqualified from prosecuting the Georgia election interference case against former President Donald Trump and his associates. And even worse, the charges could possibly be tossed altogether. Joining me now is Anna Bauer, Fulton County correspondent at Lawfare and my fellow friend that always joins me in Atlanta and vice versa when there is something going on in Fulton County. Anna, it's good to see you. Let's emphasize this, because every time that I did TV this week, I wanted to talk about the law, because sometimes with the salaciousness of what's going on, that gets lost. What is the legal standard, Anna, to be able to DQ, to disqualify a prosecutor in the state of Georgia?
5: You're right, Katie. I think that the legal standard has gotten lost amongst all the mud that we saw in court this week. Uh, but it is really important for people to understand what the standard is here. It is that there is an actual conflict. Uh, it's not enough to show an appearance of impropriety under Georgia law. What the defense has to show here to meet their burden of disqualifying Fannie Willis means that they have to show that their, her relationship with Nathan Wade caused or gave rise to, a personal or financial interest that gave her uh, a kind of interest or incentive in convicting Trump and others. Uh, And so I think that what they needed, needed to show here this week is that at the very least, either Wade and Willis commingled their assets or shared some type of income or they needed to show that these vacations that they took together that Wade allegedly paid for, it it was something that was not reimbursed and that therefore Fawny Willis benefited from those vacations financially and and it kind of amounted to a kickback scheme of sorts. I I do not think, however, that the the defense ultimately met that burden. Uh, There was some testimony uh, from Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade under oath in which they said that Fonnie Willis did reimburse those trips in cash. And the defense also failed to show that there was any sharing of assets or income. So based on what we've seen so far, I don't think that they have met that actual conflict standard, although there has been some talk that it's it's possible that Judge McAfee could potentially apply a, a lower standard of appearance of impropriety. I am a bit skeptical that he will do that, however.
0: And I do want to talk about something that hasn't been raised very much in the last 24 hours because it just happened yesterday afternoon. The cross-examination of Terrence Bradley. Terrence Bradley was the former divorce lawyer for Nathan Wade. As we know, the attorney-client privilege issue's Kicked in. There was a whole argument legally about whether there was fraud perpetrated and that it could pierce the attorney-client privilege and all of those confidential communications could come out. Judge McAfee ultimately ruled, no, there was no fraud that didn't meet the legal standard to be able to do that. But that's not really what I want to ask you. I want to ask you about the cross-examination by the state of Georgia. They went hard against Terrence Bradley, bringing up the allegations that he had sexually assaulted a law firm employee at the law firm that he had, you know, worked at with Nathan Wade. Your thoughts about that strategy. Do you think that it was effective or do you think that maybe it was an overstep?
5: It, it could have been an overstep, Katie. I'm I'm of two minds of it. Uh, remember, earlier in the proceeding, Judge McAfee did indicate that he wanted to have a conversation with Terrence Bradley in private about the communications that Terrence Bradley said that he had with Nathan Wade about his relationship with Fonnie Willis and the crucial question of when that relationship started. There's a factual dispute because Fonnie uh, Willis and Nathan Wade say that it started in 2022 after he was appointed, whereas the defense counsel have represented that it started in 2019. And Terrence Bradley seems to potentially have knowledge of when the start of the relationship was that he had through communications with Nathan Wade that he said was a part of privileged discussions related to Nathan Wade's divorce. Uh, But what this cross-examination elicited from Terrence Bradley uh, made Judge McAfee really wonder if Terrence Bradley had been uh, fully uh forthcoming in his testimony about that those conversations being privileged. Uh, so this impeachment of, of Terrence Bradley on these sexual assault allegations by the state made Judge McAfee ultimately say that he wanted to have further conversations with Terrence Bradley about whether his other conversations with Nathan Wade were in fact privileged. So that could really come back to bite the prosecution uh, if it turns out. That that Terrence Bradley has some kind of information that is uh, inconsistent with what the prosecution has put forward. With that said, however, it, it could be the case that The the state thinks that Terrence Bradley, uh, whatever information that he's going to give Judge McAfee or that they expect to give Judge McAfee, they might be concerned that he is not being honest about that information, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they wanted to impeach his credibility by bringing up the fact that he had a falling out with Nathan Wade because of these circumstances surrounding this alleged sexual assault. So it it, it could come back to bite the prosecution. or it could be effective. It, it really all just depends on what happens in that private conversation between Judge McAfee and Terrence Bradley.
0: Yeah. And Anna, I I have to let you go, sadly, and I want you to come back so we can break it down even further. But I will note for our viewers that the prosecutor on behalf of the state of Georgia on cross-examination of Terrence Bradley made it clear that Terrence Bradley was a liar, thereby suggesting that his credibility definitely is shot. Anna Bauer from Lawfare, thank you for being here. And for those of you, her encyclopedias are there. I know we're always watching you, Anna, to see if they're there. (laughs) Thanks Thanks for being here. Of course. And coming up after the break, it's deja vu, groundhog day, whatever you want to call it. The clock is ticking once again on the latest funding fight on Capitol Hill. Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell joins me next right here on set to break down what exactly lawmakers from his party are doing to avoid yet another looming government shutdown. Don't go anywhere.
4: My message for the uh, situation when I am killed is very simple: not give up. Do me a favor. Answer this one in Russian. Um, надо нельзя сдаваться если это произошло это означает что мы необыкновенно сильны в этот момент раз они решили меня убить
0: I have the chills that was chilling that was a Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny eerily foreshadowing his death in a CNN interview Russian authorities are claiming that Vladimir Putin's most prominent critic, has reportedly died in jail following his years-long battle against the Kremlin that led to his arrest, his prosecution, a poisoning attempt that he survived, and then ultimately what may have been his life-ending jail sentence. As global leaders decried this news, Republican frontrunner Donald Trump remained conspicuously silent, something my next guest pointed out, tweeting in part, Let Navalny's death be a warning to America. If returned to power, Donald Trump will jail his opponents. This isn't a forecast. He has already told us this. Joining me on set is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. He's a member of the House Judiciary and Homeland Security Committees, as well as a former impeachment manager in the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. I, I, I am speechless. When you and I just watch this right now, you and I both just were speechless. Talk about why when you and I and others say that we're not being hyperbolic about what Donald Trump is promising America should he get a second term, that it's real. That is, there's a reason why we keep on standing every day and ringing these alarm bells.
3: You and I look at a dictator like Vladimir Putin and, and we see a ruthless, ruthless man. And Donald Trump sees a mirror. He, he sees a role model and he likes Putin. Putin likes Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has said that he will go on this retribution tour. He'll be a dictator when he comes into office. And, and in fact, it would so perverted. He's now saying that he's Navalny and his his supporters are claiming that Trump uh, is Navalny when, in fact, it's not a coincidence at all that in the same week that Donald Trump invited Russia to attack NATO, that Mike Johnson refuses to pass the Senate's Ukraine aid and a journalist, and Tucker Carlson goes over and interviews Putin and doesn't ask him at all about Navalny that Putin would do this. It's not a coincidence. It's a green light that Putin saw and it's just a question now, do we care?
0: And we've heard directly from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky about what his people are suffering because of the ruthlessness you talk about with Vladimir Putin, do you think Putin is now emboldened when he sees the chaos that is this 118th Congress, the fact that aid cannot be agreed upon and the fact that the United States looks like it's just going to stand aside and then you have Donald Trump saying that NATO... Doesn't really have any value or benefit to the United States.
3: Yes, this is a tipping point right now for Ukraine, and we saw just today uh, that they are retreating uh, from an area that they had taken over because they are about to be encircled. And so, uh, Ukrainian members of parliament are reaching out to me uh, as recently as yesterday, asking, "Are you really going to walk away from this? Are you you really not going to fund us?" And, And what happens is, you know, if you're on the front lines at the line of contact, you know, in the Donbas, and you don't have bullets. You don't have water. Uh, you don't have, you know, first aid kits. Uh, you, you know, morale is going to break down, and, and they're willing to fight for their country, but they need the resources. And again, we can't fool ourselves. That fight will come to us if Ukraine falls.
0: And so that aid is being held hostage by Republicans in the House. And part of the problem is they can't seem to walk and chew gum at the same time while we're dealing with aid packages not only to Ukraine and Israel and other nations. We're looking as Americans at another looming government shutdown on March 1st. These temporary Band-Aids, Eric, they're a problem. They're just Band-Aids on a hemorrhaging wound. March 1st is right around the corner. Is it just going to be yet another continuing resolution, do you think?
3: Uh, We're governing crisis to crisis, and that's because it's not that they can't walk and chew gum. Uh, They can't walk uh, and follow Trump (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) Uh, So they have to do what Donald Trump wants them to do. They're a law firm. Uh, In the House uh, that just works for one client, Donald Trump. He doesn't want funding for Ukraine, wants to sabotage the border, uh, doesn't want us to fund the government at all because they want to shut down the government because they think it makes Biden look bad. NASA just laid off a bunch of its best scientists because they don't have certainty in their funding. And so, yes, it it is chaotic. What Hakeem Jeffries has shown and what House Democrats have shown, I think Joe Biden has shown, is competence, that we want to get things done, that we want to govern, they want to ruin.
0: Yeah. And you've talked uh, before with me about competence versus chaos and yeah. what it could deliver to the American people. Is that what is at stake? We talk in journalism yeah. terms about yeah. let's not focus on the odds anymore because these polls, they they can come and go and and, and the odds can be different. But the stakes are really count. Yeah. Is that the same thing that's happening right now in D.C.?
3: And that's yes. And that, that's what we need to make this upcoming election about. Uh, it's not about to Individuals. Uh, I'll take the individual who's 81 over the guy who has 91 felony counts. It's not about two individuals. It's about the idea of competence versus chaos or even greater freedom versus fascism. If we make it about those ideas and what they mean in our daily lives, we're going to win.
0: And, you know, Congressman, I always like to remind people that you choose to serve as a public yeah. um, servant. You give up. Uh, So much to be able to travel from California to D.C. And one of the things you do also is you actually expose yourself to personal harm on days like January 6th. It's been a crazy legal week, as it is every week. I joke that we're drinking from legal fire hoses. (laughs) What got lost in the shuffle this week Uh, is your lawsuit. Can you talk a little bit about what happened?
3: I brought a suit uh, with. Capitol Hill police officers against Donald Trump for his role in January 6 and inciting the mob and aiming them at the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, We won in the federal district court when Trump claimed immunity. We won in the court of appeals uh, with a panel of judges unanimously, Republican appointed and Democratic appointed judges. Trump was taking it to the Supreme Court and this week he dropped uh, the lawsuit. So now we have a uh, date with the judge coming up uh, in, in a few weeks to set, you know, the trial schedule, uh, and we'll go to discovery and deposition soon. And what we're seeing here, whether it's my case or E. Jean Carroll's case, or in New York or the four different felony cases, is this tapestry of accountability that's finally coming together. And I think, in the, the bigger sense, it, it's stitched together as a security blanket uh, for our rule of law and our democracy.
0: I got less than a minute. I did have to ask you: Have you seen where James Comer has gone? Because suddenly <laughs> this week, after the news came out that yeah. that informant that they that the House GOP was relying so much upon for the Biden impeachment push was indicted by the feds for lying about bribes that were made to hunter biden and joe biden it's all a lie and then james comer suddenly has now decided that's really not the guy that we were going to hang our hat on
3: they've got nothing they don't have literally nothing they've got nothing this is a continuation of the insurrection they've never accepted biden as the president now they're trying to impeach him they're trying to sabotage uh, the border and the best thing we can do as i said is lean in play on their side of the field Go on offense. Don't hide under the bed. We have nothing to hide about.
0: And some of your colleagues got lucky that they didn't get, frankly, indicted for their roles and what was happening on January 6th. Congressman Eric Swallow, thank you so much for joining us in Miami. You know, anytime you want to come here, we're always welcome to have you. Thanks Thanks, for being here. And coming up next after the break, Haley's last stand, the primary face off in South Carolina that could redetermine the fate of Nikki Haley's languishing bid for the White House. Plus, Bye Barona. We'll go inside Trump's supposed ouster of RNC chair Rona McDaniel and what her reported departure means for the future of Republicans up and down that ballot. Keep it right here. Between multiple multi million dollar verdicts and a Congress that's so disorganized, as we heard from Congressman Smallwell, they've collectively thrown out of their hands. They've gone on vacation. But we are still on the road to a presidential election that's a little over nine months away. So let's jump right into it. Joining me now, Christina Greer, associate professor of political science at Fordham University and the author of Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration and the Pursuit of the American Dream. And Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst, two of the smartest ladies that I know. Susan, I'm going to start with you. You predicted on my show when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was going to bow out of this race. I am a fan of dogged determination, just like all of us are on this panel. But when is Nikki Haley going to wave that white flag? Because she's going to be hemorrhaging money right now, and no one predicts that she's even going to win her own state.
1: I don't think she's hemorrhaging money. That's the thing. I think she has some deep pockets behind her, and that's the only reason why she'll continue to run. If she can't afford to run, she won't just throw her name out there because she won't have an apparatus, and that just changes the narrative. She has a lot of Chris Christie supporters and donors. She has a couple of billionaire class folks, and if they're behind her and want her in until Super Tuesday and feel that it's important, she'll have enough money to be there, and I think she will because— She has a message that may not be sinking in with MAGA Republicans, but it is certainly sinking in in Donald Trump's head, and he just can't take it. I think he's just getting more and more aggravated in between the court cases and and Nikki Haley and him having to campaign. That may just be enough to to deflate Donald Trump into not becoming a candidate. (laughs) My mama taught me,
0: if you don't have something nice to say, don't say something at all. I'm going to move on. Christina, RNC chair, Rona McDaniel is stepping down from her position. And she's also Donald Trump's daughter-in-law. Excuse me, Donald Trump's daughter-in-law, oh my Lord, is Laura Trump. She's going to be leading to co-chair that committee. Laura Trump's been a personal trainer, a producer for Inside Edition, an attempted country music singer. She spearheaded the Women for Trump initiative. Christina, what is going on here? Make it make sense because you and I both know she doesn't have the experience. Experience to head up the RNC. And what, what really annoys me is the hypocrisy of the GOP screaming about, you know, nepotism on the side of the Biden family. And yet, isn't this a Trump specialty? Why don't we just get everybody a job and make everybody have money?
4: Well, Katie, it's more sinister than that. I think it goes back to what Congressman Swalwell was saying in the previous segment, which is Donald Trump keeps telling us what he wants and what he wants to do for his second term if he gets one. And what he wants to do is fill the administration with sycophants and family members, just like dictators do. And so it's actually much more insidious than just putting an unqualified daughter-in-law in in the head of the party. It's really surrounding himself with people who won't be accountable, who won't have any stopgaps. If we remember, you know, for his companies, he Never had a board of directors. It was just him and his kids running roughshod. You know, the art of the steal, smash and grab, and sort of taking people's money and never paying them back. So, uh, you know, it it seems like oh, this is just what he does. You know, he's putting another you know unqualified kid uh, in charge of lots of money and lots of power. But it's actually much more scary uh, and sinister than than just putting unqualified law in charge of the RNC.
0: Susan, new reporting that got lost in the litany of Trump legal this week. Donald Trump telling allies that he supports a 16 week abortion ban with three exceptions in cases of rape or incest or to save the life of the mother, which is much less restrictive than those six week fetal heartbeat laws that have been supported and put into effect by most, if not all of the Republican Party. Why now, Susan? I'm craven enough to believe that he's trying to do this to maybe woo some independents and maybe some non-MAGA Republicans to try to get their votes.
1: Absolutely right, Katie. Um, He's looking at it now into more of a general election race than a primary. And he knows that a six week ban is basically an all right out ban on abortion. So I think he's trying to make that appeal. It is something now he's getting a little hesitant on because he knows he can't win with either side on that. And we saw what happened in Virginia when Governor Yunkin tried to make a 15-week ban, the central campaign issue. He went down spectacularly.
0: Christina, I need to ask you about that New York AG civil fraud verdict. It's huge. It's huge by any standard. I mean, $470 million and counting, literally, as we're sitting here, the interest is accruing. You know, it goes straight at the heart of Donald Trump, right? This persona that he tries to so fiercely protect, that he is this man, the myth, the the business legend. But we all know that that's not true. So, how is this going to resonate, if at all, with his supporters? Do they even care? I mean, I thought they would care about felony indictments, but they don't. Is, are they really going to care about this?
4: No, Katie. I mean, his, his supporters don't care about alleged rape charges. They don't care about his behavior. They don't care about how he talks about groups of color or immigrants or, or anyone in need or anyone marginalized. But shout out to Attorney General Letitia James, who has remained Mm -hmm. unbothered by his personal attacks. She has been very clear, steadfast and steady to say, we have a job to do. You know, she's representing the state of New York, and she has said, and very clearly from day one, this man cannot essentially grift uh, the citizens of the state of New York. And she has put forward a case, and millions of, uh, millions of dollars later, Donald Trump has to sort of pay the piper. Now, I don't think that there's anyone in New York who believes that Donald Trump will ever pay this money. Uh, he has a long history of never paying his debts. So we'll see. Uh, you know, the tally is going up by the day. We're in, what, 400-something million? But I don't know when anyone, E. Jean Carroll being one of them, will ever see a, a dollar from uh, Donald Trump. That's just never been his M.O. He's always been able to finagle his way out of it somehow. So we'll see uh, how long he drags this out uh, to actually pay people back.
0: Well, I believe he's going to pay because I believe in the rule of law. Christina Greer, Susan Del pursue thank you so much for being here. You guys are fabulous. Yes. Thanks. Thanks, Katie. And this Black History Month, MSNBC correspondent Tremaine Lee explores the story of Black America's fight to be made whole in a special podcast series. It's called Into America Presents, Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations. Tremaine speaks with descendants of Gabriel Coakley, one of the only Black Americans ever repaid for slavery, about how reparations forever changed their family's trajectory and what could have been for more black people. Scan the QR code that you see on your screen right now. You can listen now and you can hear new episodes. They come out every Thursday. And coming up next, Kremlin crackdown. Russian opposition leader and fierce Putin critic Alexei Navalny died yesterday in a Siberian gulag, along a long joining a long list of fellow Kremlin critics. But will we ever know the true circumstances surrounding his death? We'll talk about it coming up next.
2: Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. alpha 19 Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console
1: I would like Putin and all his staff,
5: everybody around him, his government, his friends. I want them to know that they will be punished for what they have done with our country, with my family and with my husband. They will be brought to justice.
0: Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalnaya, offering searing remarks on Friday during her surprise appearance at the Munich Security Conference shortly after Russian authorities announced the death of her husband. Navalny's death has spurred international outrage toward Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin, as they have in recent years initiated an unprecedented and deadly crackdown on any type of dissent. And this morning, a spokesperson for Alexei Navalny is claiming that he was murdered and demanding the immediate release of his body from the Russian investigative committee. Joining me now for more is Dr. Nola Haynes, national security and foreign policy expert, as well as a professor at Georgetown University. Dr. Haynes, you know, part of the reason why we wanted to have you on today is sometimes it gets lost on how important. Americans need to have an emphasis on paying attention on what's going on overseas. I know we have a lot going on here, but I wanted you to come here and explain why, as we heard also from Congressman Eric Swalwell a few uh, blocks ago, why Vladimir Putin is as dangerous a threat to America as he's currently posing to not only Ukrainians, but frankly, to the rest of Europe.
6: Thank you so much, Katie. It's wonderful to be here. Um, so that that's a great question. Uh, the connection between foreign policy and national security are, are very real. And in a sense of Russia, this is a question that I get asked a lot, like, why should we care? Why should we mm-hmm. care? Because right now we are in a very real t- tense battle between democracy and authoritarianism. We're literally... They're literally on the opposite side of the seesaw. That's where we are. It's one type of uh, one type of way of living your life versus another way of living, living your life that includes being subjected to the state. And why it matters is because people are aligning with the, the way that Trump and his ilk are thinking. Authoritarianism is not just some lofty ideal. It is right around the corner. It is right around the next election. So what is happening in Russia Let's put aside Ukraine because that also affects us here, too. Right. Let's put that aside for a moment. And let's just talk about what happens if democracy fails in this country. The freedoms that we enjoy, they may be imperfect, but they will completely evaporate. And Katie, I got to say for people that look like us, we won't fare well in an authoritarian regime.
0: That is totally true. Doctor, I did want to say Alexei Navalny, the most prominent critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. What's left now of the opposition movement now that Navalny, according to his family, has been murdered?
6: Right. So first point is Alexei Navalny Navalny died a patriot for his country and for democracy, first and foremost. And secondly, this is a spark. This is a spark in a very old country like Russia. I kinda of want I want to contextualize this sort of symbolism of what Navalny represents for the opposition in Russia. In in very old cultures, symbolism, martyrs mean a great deal. I mean, Russia can be dated all the way back to 882. That's just how old this place is. So while he lost his life, and keep in mind, he knew that would happen when he left Germany. He decided to go back to Russia. So this spark, this symbolism, is perhaps what will get more Russians involved, even under the threat of the state, which they are facing just, just as we speak. People um, who are out just mourning the loss of Navalny, um, they are being rounded up and arrested, and the entire world is seeing this. And then secondly, Navalny was not the only opposition leader. There are other opposition leaders that are also in jail. So this movement, while Navalny was definitely the global face of it, he was not alone. They are still opposition opposition uh, leaders that are still in jail right now.
0: And to your point, doctor, right now, the Russian monitoring group OVD Info has reported at least 340 people have been detained across Russia at Navalny memorial rallies that are taking place right now. With the majority of those arrests happening in St. Petersburg, we've heard from President Biden. We've heard from other world leaders. What do they need to do to be able to make sure that there is accountability for the death of Alexei Navalny?
6: That's a great question, and this is part of the difficulty. Again, when you have a regime where there's no accountability, when there's one person who wants to be king and everyone else is a subject, It's really challenging to get that person to operate within within the 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 international system of norms. There are many people who will push back and say that there technically isn't a viable international system, but there are levers that can be pulled. But the thing is, will Vladimir Putin even pay attention to the ICC possibly, you know, charging him with 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 crimes? It's about. The fact that authoritarians, dictators, they have nearly absolute power. And this is the problem. How would he be held accountable? Well, you know, the best thing to say is to vote because voting is coming up in Russia. And which some people say that this is why Navalny died, is because he was the opposition leader that stood out and that people wanted to have him on the ballot also. So all of Putin's um, real, real, real. Um, Competition is completely obliterated with Navalny off the ballot now. So this is a a unique situation. And how will he be held accountable? I don't know. But I want to go back to Ukraine for a second. Mm -hmm. It's imperative for Vladimir Putin to be stopped here. He cannot he cannot win. Ukraine has to win, because if he does win, he will keep going. And he's been talking a lot about Poland. And that makes me very nervous. In many ways, since the beginning of this thing, you know, everyone said this is very reminiscent of 1939. And it is. And that's the scary part. That's what's at stake, not just for the U.S., but for the entire world. This isn't a game.
0: Dr. Nola Haynes, thank you for being here to share your insight and to educate us. It's so important. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. You can catch me back here next Saturday at noon Eastern. Remember to follow us on social media using the handle at Katie Fang Show. You can also catch clips of the show on YouTube. And you can listen to every episode of The Katie Fang Show as a podcast for free. Scan that QR code you see on your screen to follow now. Don't go anywhere. MSNBC reports with Alex Witt. It's coming up next.